having established the fact that man needs a moral government, we now ask, what do we know about our obligations? Or what are our duties to God and man in God's moral government? We have seen that there is a vast realm of cause and effect in the physical universe and in animate creatures below the level of man. It is characterized by definiteness and certainty. The cause being established, the effect always follows. The instinct being provided, the action follows. But this mode of regulation we have seen cannot prevail in the realm of intelligent beings who have the power of creative reason. If it could, the very essence of man's distinctiveness would disappear. Man needs regulation since there is more than one moral being involved. And thus mankind might trample on one another's rights and privileges. God obviously exists and his rights above all need to be considered. We have seen that moral beings need to be governed by motives for action rather than direct causation of action. Force and coercion would eliminate and make void their very constitutions. The approach to proper action must be made with all intelligence, all reason being on the side of right conduct. If this does not result in correct behavior, nothing can. Behavior must be behavior. It must be we ourselves who are doing the acting because we so choose. Everyone must assert the necessity of regulation then, and being what we are, everyone must assert that man requires a different sort of treatment than the planets or animals. We all agree that we must have a government that is suited to our constitutions, that will not wipe out our free actions, and yet will direct us into that way of life that is the unfolding of happiness to God and man. It is in order now to inquire as to the foundation of our obligation and develop the idea of oughtness. In the first place, we ought to yield obedience to a righteous moral government because the happiness and well-being of our fellow man is just as important as our own. Who can escape this conclusion? Is it right that we prefer our own happiness and pursue it to the detriment of others on our same level? This is an assertion of common sense which cannot be denied. The idea of oughtness, therefore, is founded in the idea of rightness to consider the well-being of our fellow men. In the second place, we ought to yield obedience to a righteous moral government because we feel the need of such restraint and regulation. In short, apart from some profound motivating influence to kindle our intelligence toward right action and to present a fear of the course that must result from wrong action, none would be inspired to proper pathways. Moral government provides the force of influence that we know we need. In the third place, 
we ought to obey God because we recognize that we need some being greater than ourselves to arbitrate between us. We need someone who can look down upon us from another level of being, who can view our actions impartially. If such a moral governor can be found, we are duty-bound to obey for the good that will result among ourselves. If we look merely to one another, how can strict impartiality prevail? In the fourth place, we ought to yield obedience to moral government because of our feeling of dependence. We view our complicated bodies and personalities as a purchaser would view an expensive machine that he has bought with his life's savings. He fears that he may abuse it and thus render it worthless and therefore looks to someone to give him information on how to operate it aright. In the maze of complicated controls, he looks to someone who knows more than he. He has thus a feeling of dependence and a disposition to lean on someone else. Man apart from the consideration of the rights of others has this feeling of dependence that impels him to submit to a higher government and directive. We have a feeling that we want to lean upon someone greater than ourselves. In the fifth place, we ascend the ladder of oughtness by affirming that we have compelling evidence of the existence of a being in the universe who is capable to exercise over us a righteous and efficient moral government. If we had no evidence of the existence of God, the before-mentioned needs would impel us to look through the universe for a governor of suitable capacity and character to reign over us. We are prepared then from our human needs to submit to such a governor if he can be found. We now assert that we have every evidence to believe that such a governor does in fact exist. This multiplies our obligation. We conclude that we must not only submit to a principle of procedure, but now, wonderfully enough, we can submit to a person worthy of every veneration and trust. The great God is able to exert a righteous moral government by virtue of his capacities. We have seen that the marvels of our inner being demands the recognition of a creator greater than ourselves. We have viewed in quick scope our horizon of profound intricacies of the world of matter, where we see design plans without end. This has been formed evidently pointing to something else, and so forth. Any being who could work out and bring into existence all this must have the mental ability and understanding to govern us. Any being who has the power and greatness to accomplish all this certainly is great enough to demand our submission to his wise ways and adaptations. A being who is everywhere present should demand our confidence 
that nothing would escape his observations and call forth his divine dispensations. The idea of eternity in God should inspire our confidence in the stability and dependability of the divine government. So we see overwhelmingly that the qualifications of God should demand our submission to his wonderful moral government. But in the sixth place, the crowning force that impels Otnes toward a total submission to the moral government of God is the evidence we have of the goodness and love of God. If we ought to submit to God because he is great, we ought all the more to submit to God because he is good. The Lord Jesus said, There is none good but one, that is God. We have commented previously on the idea that purpose and design seems to pervade the universe. The great creator did not act arbitrarily in expending the great forces of creation, but had a benevolent plan in the whole. Man alone in the arrangements of earth was given the ability to understand and reflect the glory of God. This bestowal upon man of the image of God so that man could comprehend something of the greatness and goodness of God shows the gracious kindness of God's moral character. Such love should cause to echo within us a happiness of submission. As we view the details of creation, we see on every hand the goodness of God. But to borrow from a future discussion, a change of many characteristics of the dispensations of God have been necessary because of the entrance of sin into our world. We are not to think, therefore, that many things which now have the humbling effect of burdens were originally created so by God. For as we shall see, the Bible reveals that they were later added because of sin. To evaluate the goodness of God, we need therefore to peer through these burdens and disappointments and discern the true goodness and love from the heart of God that has flowed forth to man and creation. The faithfulness of God is also manifested on every hand, which should inspire confidence that God not only has been good, but continues to be good. So with our full persuasion that we are duty-bound to submit to a moral government, first out of consideration for the happiness of all, second out of our feeling the needs of its restraint, third out of the need of the arbitration of some being greater than ourselves, Fourth, out of the feeling of dependence and smallness which pervades us. Fifth, out of the evidence we have of the natural qualifications of God to be our governor. And sixth, out of the consciousness that God is good or has a moral attribute drawing us to submission, we are certainly prepared to climax the whole consideration, along with Peter and the apostles, by saying, 
we ought to obey God. And then say with Peter, as our Lord asked them that pathetic question, Will ye also go away? They answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And so as we view this tremendous evidence of truth and our tremendous obligations to such a good and kind and great God and our duties to one another, certainly to whom shall we go to flee such wonderful thoughts? And yet we do not need to because a redemption has been provided in the Lord Jesus Christ into which we may enter by repentance and faith. Our Heavenly Father, add the seal and force of thy Spirit upon these tremendous truths that we have thought upon, and may many this day realize anew thy true character and thy true affairs in thy government of men, and may they come by way of repentance and faith to find the glorious salvation a reality in their lives as thou hast promised, in Jesus' name our Savior, amen.